20 tonight. I think we can do that. Verses 12 through 20. Revelation chapter 1, 12 through 20. We will read verses 12 through 20, and then I'll come back to each verse and try to teach on each verse. Revelation 12, verse number 20. Revelation, let me get it right. Revelation chapter 1, verse 12. I got it all mixed up there. That was terrible. Revelation 1, verse 12. And um, if you can follow in your Bible, verses 12 through 20. And I turned, John says, I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And be, uh, being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, verse 15, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters, verse 16, and he hid, uh, had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Verse 18, I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars, which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks, which thou sawest, are the seven churches. Now let's go back to verse number 12 and go through each verse and try to, try to teach on some of the important words here. In verse number 12, he says, I turned to see the voice that spake with me. Now this voice is going to sound like to him in a different way than what he had just heard. In verse number 10, the voice was like a trumpet. Verse 10, the voice he heard was like a trumpet. As you read in this passage, the voice would be different from a trumpet. He saw seven golden candlesticks, verse 12. Verse 13, in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man. He is told. Now we will describe what is described here in John. In verse number 13, in the midst, in the middle of the seven candlesticks. Seven candlesticks. Now, when you see the word candlestick, you might think of this. You might think of this. Uh, let's see, he has that yeah, like that. You know, in the Old Testament tabernacle, let's see, one, two, three, four, five. I'm missing one, yeah? Yeah, one more on either side. Yeah. You know, okay, hold on. Let me go up here. Make it short. Yeah, what's this called? This golden candlestick in the tabernacle? Golden candlestick. Called the golden candlestick, and sometimes it's called the menorah. No, I do have here. 
someone donated some pins, and I have to use one. I have pressure on me to use the pen, so. Now this is one way you can think that when you see a candlestick just like this. However, it could be something simple like this. There's a single candle, could be that. I kind of think that's it myself. But there's a, I'll say single candlesticks, uh, candlestick and a single candle on it, or or this one. I choose to think it's that one. Either way, you're gonna find in your, when you study, it's gonna be one or the other. Most of them are gonna say this. Most gonna say that. One, one shaft, and then coming out of it are six arms so to, to burn the oil for the for the candlestick. Okay, now look at verse number 20. He identifies the seven candlesticks for you. No need to guess. Verse 13, the midst of the seven candlesticks, in verse number 20, he tells you what they are. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are, what? The seven churches of Asia Minor. So the seven candlesticks here represent Seven of them, seven are local churches of Asia Minor. So the ones that he's going to write to, that's what this represents. Seven, seven candlesticks and seven candles represent seven local churches. Okay, he tells you what it is. Now remember with these different symbols of the Revelation, you can go in all kinds of directions and make up all kinds of meanings but he did define for you already in verse 20 what the seven golden candlesticks are. And so uh, seven golden candlesticks, uh, a good symbol for the church. A candlestick is a great symbol for the church because the candlestick, the candle, not the stick, but the candle is supposed to shine. It's supposed to shine, illuminate, give illumination to expose things, to show things. Now, I have a weakness. When I go to Costco, this is a temptation I always avoid or fight. When I go to Costco, I'm always looking for something. Food. <laughs> <laughs> They're bringing it back. They're bringing back free samples. Besides looking for that, <laughs> I'm looking for flashlights. Flashlights, they come in a three pack, 500 uh, lumens each one for $19. I'm waiting for it to go on sale. Okay? It's a Duracell brand. Now, here's the problem. I already have them. I bought them two years ago, three years ago. I already have the three. I still have one that I've not used. It's still there. I've used the other two. They kind of go out after a few months, it seems like the clicker. But I have them. I have the same ones. Now it's just packaged different. They're silver, not black. I've got three of them already. I like flashlights. I like flashlights. Why do I want to go buy another set of three flashlights? Already got three, plus I got one that's a thousand lumens, a big one with AA battery, uh, uh, D batteries. They are powerful. I like flashlights. Uh, lights out in my house. I have a flashlight with me wherever I go so I can see what I'm doing. Get up early in the morning. I don't want to wake up my wife, so I get up and uh, put my glass on. I grab my flashlight, nice hand. I go around like that. Flashlights are intended illuminate in the dark. What do I see in the dark? The other night, I was at my desk late at night, 
little lamp on. I hear I hear the sound. Like this. I look toward my bookcase. What is it? I don't know. Get my flashlight. I shine. It's a big roach. It's a B-52. Big brown ones. It, it, it hit the it hit the ground. It went. I thought, man, it's a whopper. I get the flashlight. You know what the roach does? The roach does this. The antenna go like that. And the light shines in it. He does that. And he stares at me. And he does this. <laughs> I get the flashlight, try to whack him, I miss him. Flashlights, I love flashlights because it shows things, it reveals things. You know the Bible says that the church is like? The, the church is like something. The Christians in the church are like something. Come to Matthew chapter 5. I think you know these verses, but let's turn to Matthew chapter 5 and let's see the symbolism of the seven candlesticks. The seven churches. What are they supposed to do? Matthew chapter 5, verse number 14. Jesus is teaching on the mountain. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's three chapters. Verse number 14 says, Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle. That's the light he's talking about. A candle, not a flashlight. A candle and put it under a bushel. Now notice the, the foolishness of people. They are a candle or they have candles. Verse 15. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel. Why would you do that? But on a candlestick. Put it where it's, where it's supposed to go. On a stick to hold it up, to prop it up. And it giveth light unto all that are in the house. That's the intention of a candle, to give illumination to those who are in darkness. Now watch, verse 16. He says then, let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Now keep that in mind. He just said, you're like a little light. You're like a light. Uh, a city on a hill cannot be hid. You have to see a city on a hill because in nighttime, it probably has lights going on. Fireplaces, things like that. So if you're traveling, you see in the distance some kind of light flickering on a hillside. It's a city. It, it gets your attention. It gives direction. Now go to Luke. Luke. Jesus says something about the the candle and being light in Luke. Luke chapter eight and verse number sixteen. Eight sixteen. The seven candlesticks are seven local churches. They are supposed to shine. Verse number 16. No man, when he hath lighted a candle, covereth it with a vessel. What's a vessel? A pot, a bowl, a cup. You light the candle and you cover it. That doesn't make any sense. You are covering the light. Rather than let the light shine as far as you can go. Or put it under a bed. Now this is crazy. You light a candle and put it under your bed. What's going to happen? <laughs> They're going to burn your bed. <laughs> put it under a bed, but set it on a candlestick, that they which enter in may see the light. So the whole, go back to Revelation, the whole idea of lighting a candle, a candle is to give light so those can see what's around in the room and see where the furniture is and see where the roaches are and see what the, you can see you have illumination. That's the, the church is supposed to be like a candle on a stick to shine in this dark world. 
the people of the church are supposed to shine by their good works. Now, everybody who's a Christian has to remember that every day of our lives, we are to reflect, shine, somehow express that we represent Jesus Christ in some way. He says, by your good works. So by your kindness, your good works, your honesty, your integrity, your character, all of these things, the good works, it is, it is showing, it is revealing to people that there's something good about you. And maybe I'd like to find what that good thing is about you that makes you so good in your good works and so on. Okay? Do you not respect an honest policeman? Do you not respect an honest judge? There are some judges, federal judges and circuit court judges. In the last few years, it seems like you cannot respect anybody now. It seems like money speaks louder than anything else nowadays. Something in your mind as a common American citizen, so clear about right and wrong, and yet the judge decides this, and it sure seems like there's something going on, and it involves money of some kind or a favor, paying back someone for a favor. Someone's calling in a favor. You just don't have confidence anymore in authorities, it seems like. But it sure is a good feeling. You can have confidence in a judge that's honest. Can the Lord be honest? <laughs> uh, could be. Could be. But the point is, uh, by our good work, we reflect Jesus Christ. That's the thing to learn. Now come back to Revelation chapter 1. It's a good sermon for the local church, this candle on a stick, because... That's our business in this world. Now, he continues by saying, verse number 13, And one, in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, and one like unto the Son of Man. That would be Jesus. Notice this, the description of Jesus. Clothed with the garment down to the foot. Now, picture this. Jesus standing, a man standing. He is covered from neck down to his feet. And girt about the paps with the golden girdle. We're about to see a contrast from seeing Jesus on the cross, seeing Jesus on the cross, and seeing him glorified. We're gonna see a contrast between these two times of his life. And first of all, when you saw Jesus on the cross, when he went to the cross, he was not covered to the foot with clothing. Whatever clothing he had on, was taken from him, it was torn apart, and he went to the cross naked, humiliated, shamed. His clothes, whatever he had on him, was torn and blood-stained. Now you see him in Revelation 1, just the opposite. What a total contrast. He is fully clothed, meaning he is not humbled, humiliated anymore. He's not glorified, and he's not shamed. He has a golden girdle. Golden girdle. What do you think about when you think about a girdle? Now, in Bible days and definition of Bible thing, a girdle is something you put on the waist, like a leather thing. It holds a knife or sword. That's a typical girdle description made out of leather. Or it's something that goes around here made out of maybe linen, sewn with something else, you know. But I think it's something different because of how he describes this girdle. Look at the description. Girt about. The garment goes down to the foot and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. So this girdle now is covering his chest area. 
his chest area. So it's not a waist thing anymore. It's something covering his chest area. It's golden. This is clothing befitting royalty. Now the clothes don't make the man. Some people are very interested in about clothing. Now men can be very vain as a woman can be. Uh, some men, they keep up with fashion so much. It's really incredible. They're up to speed with this and that, every well-known designer and things. They, they're up to speed with that. They spend all kinds of money in their budget, if they had one, giving them just the, the latest fashion. Okay, that's their life. Some people think that if they, if they look good, they feel good, which is kind of true. It's kind of true. It's sort of true. If you were a businessman, you showed up at work with flip-flops and um, shorts and going to the beach, you feel out of place. But if the dress standard for this business is suit and tie, you show up with suit and tie, you feel like you're ready for business. That's just normal, okay? But Jesus Christ here has apparel fit for royalty because he is royalty. It doesn't make him a king, he is the king. And there's a big difference here. And so look at this. Uh, verse 14, another contrast between the cross and how Jesus is described. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. Now, how can we in Hawaii understand that statement? For one thing, we don't see snow every day, let alone in our lifetime if we live just in Hawaii. But if you go to the mainland in different countries, you will find in the wintertime snow. And it is uh, oftentimes dirty because of the road and cars and the salt and the stuff that you know gets all gray and brown, even black sometimes. Doesn't look very nice, but snow out in the woods, out in the mountains, somewhere where there's no humans and only uh, snow coming down. And when snow comes down, you don't hear it coming down. I was once in Pennsylvania, my first time off of this island in Pennsylvania. I went to school, invited by my friend Keith, Keith Brunt, to go to his home in Chester, Pennsylvania, near uh, Philadelphia. So. It was really cold. We took a bus ride from Chattanooga all the way up to Pennsylvania. Took I don't know how many overnight. Got to the house. It was just cold. But then, uh, three or four days into being at his house, looked out the window. You know what's coming down? I went outside. I went outside. Went outside. Looked outside. Looked up. Snow was coming down to the ground. It was covering the ground, which still had grass. And it was the, the ground is now little green coming through, but it was getting white, and then it was all white, and snow was coming out. You could not hear snow falling. It just drifted on very quietly. That same week, they had a Christmas Eve service at Keith's church, out somewhere in the country, small country church. At the front of the church had a light pole, light stand with a little light. We're in church. It's not snowing but it's cold and then they're singing Christmas songs and they look outside I see snow falling a picture perfect Hallmark card snow falling in the night and it's coming down and by the time church is over we'll go outside to go Christmas caroling the, the ground is covered with snow snow is still coming down softly quietly and you can see the snow in the light almost like glittering it is just so nice how can we understand that when we don't experience snow every day or every season? But his hair is white as snow. White as snow. And also, 
And also, it says, um, um, no, see, verse number 14, his hair, head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. That's pretty white. Now, the white represents something. In the Bible, white is symbolic, like black is symbolic. You know what black symbolizes? Black symbolizes in the Bible. Darkness, black symbolizes evil, sin, the devil. Now, it doesn't mean if we're black, you are evil or sinful. It doesn't mean that at all. See, now, you're wearing black. I like black. I like black shirts. I wear black pants. It doesn't mean anything except black. It's just black. But in the Bible, the symbolism is evil. And he says here, his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. Just the opposite of evil. Clean, righteous, holy. So this son of God, son of man, in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, he's there, his hair is white like snow. That represents his holiness, his purity. Now when he was crucified on the cross, contrast cross to then, to what John sees. At the cross, his hair was black, and he was all matted because of the crown of thorns and the blood that came out, and because of his beating. His hair was really, really um, sticky, matted together, bunched together. It was not like this vision that John sees. So back to the cross, that vision of Jesus, oh, so, so, uh, can't even look at that. But now when John sees Jesus, he's glorified, totally different. You're seeing a contrast between Jesus on the cross and Jesus in his glorified state. Quite different. When you see Jesus, you're not going to see him with a crown of thorns on his head. Okay, let's keep going. White hair, white as snow. Uh, verse number 14, his eyes now. Okay, we talked about his garments. John talked about his hairs that are white like snow. And then it says now in verse 14, his eyes were as a flame of fire. His eyes. John sees his eyes and he says, oh, what am I looking at? Now, my wife, she does something to me that makes me really upset. Sometimes when she's playing around and having fun, making fun of me, she looks at me like this and then she could make her eyes real big, like that. She go, and she gets in my face, she go, no, I can't get my eyes real big like hers, but, um, but uh, and then I have to do that because her eyes are just spooky when she makes her eyes real big like that. And then I don't like to see dolls that have eyes dolls with eyes especially if the eyelids go down like that open and close like that you, you turn it and it goes like that I, they creep me out dolls that have eyes that open like that oh creepy now the eyes of jesus are not creepy but they are scary in the sense that it is penetrating it is staring it is looking deep into your soul it's like fire that's a different kind of a look and his eyes were as a flame of fire now when it says, as a flame of fire, remember this rule of interpretation. When you read the Bible, the first thing you do, when you read the Bible, take things literally as it says. That's the first thing. Number two, if it doesn't seem like the scriptures, other scriptures support what you think it means, then you, you think, I must take this as something figurative or symbolic. Some things that you read are not meant to be taken literally. Now look at verse number 15 as another example. Verse 15. Or I should say as an example, verse 15. His feet, his feet, his literal feet, like unto fine brass. Wait a minute. 
was Jesus' feet really brass, made out of brass? No, it's like, it's like unto fine brass. Look at verse 16. And he had in his right hand seven stars. Really? Was he holding seven stars? What, what stars? what kind of stars was he? No, no. And out of his mouth, another symbolism. Out of his mouth went a sharp to a sword. Is that really literal? Can I take that literally? No. No. Revelation 19, a sharp to sword comes out of his mouth as well. Not to be taken literally. So there is some consideration when you look at how to interpret something literally. Literal first, yes. But then there has to be a time when something is not literal. Here's another time that is not. Now, if you go back to verse number uh, 14, his eyes were as, like and as. That's how you can tell it's not literal, but it's like this. It portrays something that it does. His eyes were like a flame of fire. What's the flame of fire do? It burns. It burns. His eyes that looks at you, it burns. It gives you conviction. It goes right, it looks, as I say, looks right through your soul. He sees you like he knows you. Now, at the cross, what kind of eyes did Jesus have on the cross? They were eyes of compassion. What did he tell John about his mother? Take care of my mother. Those are eyes. He looked for John. John, take care of my mother. Eyes of compassion. This time, in his glorified state, what John sees is something different. He sees quite the different Jesus who was once meek, gentle, compassionate. He sees a Jesus that has a stare, has a look that is so convicting and penetrating. This is a different aspect of Jesus Christ. It's a judge. It's a judge. Now look at verse 15. His feet, like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. On the cross, what did they do to Jesus' feet? Of course we know. They pierced his feet. They pierced his feet with a large stake or nail. And so now his feet, John sees his feet as if it is fine brass. Now, in the Bible, the symbolism in the Bible, brass always symbolizes something. What does brass always symbolize? I'll give you a clue. In the Old Testament, again, in the tabernacle, when they sacrificed the animal at an altar, the first thing they did when they came to the, the tabernacle entrance, there's a white linen curtain that goes around, and then you brought your sacrifice to the front. The first piece of furniture in the tabernacle was a brazen altar. Brazen, another word for brass. At this altar, it was like a barbecue. Fire was kindled underneath, and then the animal would be would killed, it'd be cut, it'd be put on top of the grate, it'd be barbecued. The fire in this brazen altar, the brazen altar, I would say, symbolizes judgment. The animal was judged right there on behalf of the one who brought the animal. Sacrifice. Now, Jesus' feet is like fine brass, and so it's like this is judgment. So his eyes are penetrating. He's got white hair. Now, picture this. He's got white hair. White symbolizes purity, holiness, the brass symbolizes judgment. The eyes symbolize uh, a sea right through. This is judgment. He's the judge coming back at the judge, but he would judge the seven churches in chapter two and three. He would judge fairly, accurately, 
honestly, without prejudice, he would judge according to the facts. That would be a good thing for judges today to have integrity to judge according to the law. And when Jesus Christ comes, he will be judging, judging, judging. Not as a sacrificial lamb, but as a judge at the second coming. Now also see in verse number 15, his voice. So far we have his garments, his hair, his eyes, his feet. Now we have something else, his voice. Verse 15, his voice as the sound of many waters. Many waters. Now back to the cross in contrast. At the cross, what did his voice say to his father when he prayed? He said seven things from the cross. One of the things he said was by himself to his father that someone could hear with a loud voice he cried something. In Matthew 27, verse 46. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So now John hears a voice. The voice is different from what he said on the cross. The voice is like the voice of many waters. Now what does it say his voice is like many waters? His voice is like many waters. His voice is not like still waters. His voice is not like calm waters. His voice is like many waters. Roaring. Roaring. Now so what do you think about when you think about many waters? His voice is like many waters. Waterfall. Yes. Okay, waterfall. here's a waterfall. Here's a boat going over it. <laughs> he got too close to the waterfall. <laughs> uh, have you ever been to a big waterfall? And just listen to the roar of a waterfall. It's pretty loud. It can be so loud that you can't hear yourself talk. It's just the rushing of the water. What about, have you ever experienced watching, maybe on a video, a flash flood? A big flash flood? When a flash flood comes, people can they say, do you hear that? Do you hear that? Run! They get away to higher ground because... There's a, there's a bunch of water coming down this river. It's a flash flood. It comes all of a sudden, and it comes down and roars past. It's taking trees and trunks and rock. It's just rushing everything out. It's a rushing flash flood. Now, the idea of many waters is, I think, more like a waterfall. It's loud. It's powerful. Now, Jesus on the cross said something by himself in his own voice, in a, in a, in a loud voice to his father. But now when Jesus speaks, John says he hears a voice as of many waters. So the, the, the picture here is a powerful voice, a loud voice. Now, as I say, when you buy a waterfall, it's so loud you can't hear yourself talk. In a courtroom, listen, in a courtroom, who is in charge in the courtroom? The bailiff, the prosecutor, the defense attorney, the gallery, the, the jury, who's in charge? The judge. If someone in the gallery speaks up and squawks, you know what the judge does? He gets to the gallery and says, Hey, you, sit down or I'll fine you for contempt of court. They sit down. He's got the law behind him. He's got a bailiff. He's got a sheriff over here to manhandle this guy. Need be. The judge is in control. When the judge speaks, 
you have to listen to him. Whatever any arguments are, even if the attorneys argue with the judge, that the judge says, shh, I've had enough, I've heard enough, that's it. But your honor, stop. They have to stop. Think of that and then think about this, this one who has white hair, he's got feet of brass, he's got eyes are like a, like a flame of fire, he's the judge. And when he speaks, no matter what anybody says before him at his court, they have to just be quiet. He has to speak, they have to listen. His voice supersedes their voices. Whatever they think makes no difference. Hush, they have to hush. His voice is like the voice of many waters. Authority, power. Stop. They stop. At the judgment, when the Lord says, yeah, but Lord, you don't understand. The Lord says, stop. They have to stop. The nations, when Jesus comes back to judge the nations, they say, oh, you know, you, you don't understand, Lord. We have a right to, to attack the Jewish, your people. Judge, the, judge, the judge says, stop. The voice says, stop. They have to stop. That's what you're finding out. This is the authority and the power of this voice that John hears. This is the very same voice that says, okay, let's see. And stars, let's see. Okay, stars. Universe. Power. You realize how powerful this voice is? And how, how impotent man is? Man, listen. Man thinks he is powerful. He can control nature. You know man cannot control nature. We can try to go all electric. We can try to go all green. We're going to fail to save this world. You know who can save this world? Not man. Nobody can save this world, no matter what the policies are. You can get everybody forcing, force them to get electric cars, and you're not going to do nothing to save this world. You know who can save this world? The voice of many waters, because he's got the authority and power. I just have to tell you this. The sun. The sun. What's the first planet next to the sun? Is it Mars? Mercury or Venus? Mercury's right there. Okay, then you have Venus, maybe, and then you have the Earth. Okay, here's the Earth. Now, you know, and around the Earth is a moon that rotates around it. It orbits the moon, the earth. You know, all of these things are held in its proper distances and its proper orbit and angles. So the earth, this earth, it goes around the sun in an orbit. It takes a whole year to go around the sun. It goes at an exact angle. It doesn't go straight up like this. It's at an angle. 23 and a half degrees. Wait, this earth is spinning. It's going around the sun. It takes a whole year. It goes way out there. Wintertime. It comes back. Close to the sun. Springtime. It gets close to the sun. Summertime. And then it starts to go out again. Fall. And it gets to get winter. Far. It goes like that. Pretty interesting, huh? You know something? Who is in control of the earth going like that for how many centuries? Who keeps in its orbit? Scientists, astronomers say, oh, it's the gravity that makes pull the sun. Yeah, but that doesn't explain how it's happening. It doesn't explain who put it all in motion. 
Uh, this latest space camera goes out, not the Hubble, but the one before, after the Hubble, uh, whatever it's called. It's going way beyond what Hubble could do. It's bringing back fantastic scenes and shots of this universe. They've seen all kinds of things out there. There's no collisions. What you find is that this voice is all powerful, authoritative. We cannot do what he can do, no matter how much we foolishly try. Now, his feet are like brass, fine brass. His voice, the sound of many waters. And so, I want you to see verse number 16. He had in his right hand seven stars. He had in his right hand, verse 16, seven stars. Now, remember on the cross, where was his right hand? Where was his left hand? Nailed to that cross beam. His hand nailed to the cross beam was, was unable to do anything. It was stationary. It was pinned to wood by a nail. And he could not hold anything, neither could he grip anything. But now Jesus is in such a way, in his glorified condition, he's able to hold seven stars in his right hand. And so what a contrast. The seven stars are defined as the seven angels of the seven churches. Uh, an angel, an angel is a messenger. And so there, is there an angel that is around a church? Is there an angel that is hovering above the church? An angel is a spiritual being created by God. Does this church have an angel around us? These seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. What could these stars be? What could these angels be of these seven churches? Well, it's not a literal angel because other scriptures do not bear that out. So once again, take things literally unless it is not possible from the scripture. These seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches and uh, these are the messengers. An angel is a messenger. An angel delivers messages. Now, who in a church delivers messages? Yes. So, they're called angels. They're called stars. Now, let me, let me clarify. They're called stars, but no, no, no pastor, no angel of the church is a star. As we understand star as a celebrity star. As in superstar in sports. We have this glorification of man so much in our culture. If an athlete can shoot a basketball three-pointers or dunk the ball, he's a superstar. If a football player can throw the football for touchdowns, he's a superstar. If a runner can run and go really fast, he's a superstar. If a guy can sing or shoot, whatever, they're superstars. They're celebrities. There are no superstars. There are no stars, no celebrities in that sense. So the church, the pastor, is just a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, in verse number uh, 16, Oh, here we go. One more time. Out of his mouth, out of the Lord's mouth, went a sharp to a sword. Of course, not a literal sword, but what kind of thing can come out of his mouth that's like a sword? I'll give you a verse. Hebrews chapter 4. Come over there. You got to see this verse. Hebrews chapter 4. This is what comes out of his mouth. It's like a two-edged sword. It is not, but it's like a two-edged sword. You may know this verse. If you do not know this verse, you got to mark it. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. Out of his mouth goes the sharp two-edged sword. What an image, what a picture. It's not literal. It's figurative of something that is as 
effective and as sharp and cutting as a two-edged sword. Verse number 12. For, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper, sharper than any two-edged sword. Aha. Uh -huh. Piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. A real two-edged sword cannot cut your soul and your spirit. It can cut your body. But the word of God cuts more than that. It cuts the spiritual part of you. It convicts you and is a discerner. Uh, even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow. And is a discerner of the thoughts. A sword, a real sword cannot get into your head. <laughs> But the word of God does. Discern of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, this is the word of God that comes out of his mouth that is all powerful, and by it he will smite the nations. Now, uh, one more thing here in verse number 16, his countenance. At the second coming, by the way, when you, you have a reference to the second coming, chapter 19, the sword of his mouth, which sword, when he speaks, he wipe out the nations with the words from his mouth. Once again, we're reminded about the power and authority of his words. He spoke things into existence. He speak things to stay in existence. And he speaks to kill and to destroy. That's God. If you ever thought that God is only Merry Christmas, have a good day, smile, God loves you kind of thing, you have to look at the other aspects of what the Bible says God is like too. Now, in verse number 16, a sharp to a sword, uh, his countenance then was as the sun shineth in his strength. As the sun. Well, bright, bright. What's the brightest time of the day, they say? Noonday sun? I'm not sure. When Paul got knocked off the source, the light that he saw was brighter than the sun. Brighter than the sun. When Jesus returns, that's the type of light that he shows because doesn't the Bible say God is light? In him is no darkness at all. Or maybe that's a little thing where God is so bright in his pure essence of God that when he comes back, I mean, he's shining like that. It could be very well. Isaiah 52, 14 says, As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, his form more than the sons of men. At the cross, he was so beaten, you couldn't recognize his face as a man. Now when he comes back in his glory, his face is shining so bright you can't even look at his face. What a transformation. What a change. Here's what you learn. Jesus' earthly life was one of humility, suffering, sacrifice, being a servant. Dying on the cross for the sins of mankind. Resurrection of Christ. Went back to heaven. When he returns, he returns in quite a different way than when he was on earth. He doesn't come as a lamb he did over here. He comes as a roaring lion. He doesn't come as a meek, weak, let the sinful man apprehend him and, and crucify him. He comes back as a righteous judge and he's going to come to make war. And the world will see him when he comes back. Those that crucified and pierced his side and the, and the rest, and they will want to hide, but they can't hide from him then. And so look at verse number 17. We'll finish up here. And when I saw him, John says, I fell at his feet dead. No wonder. After all that we have looked at, no wonder he fell like he had a heart attack. 
so shocked and so awed by what he sees. And he laid his right hand upon me and saith unto me, Fear not. Now the voice is comforting, isn't it? This voice of many waters, this voice like a trumpet. Now it's a very comforting voice. You know what you learn about, about Christ, about the Bible, about God? The Lord, the Lord deals with us in different ways. And he reveals himself in different aspects. When you need comfort, he's there to give you comfort. When you need to get a slap in the face, he's there to slap in the face. You need to be convicted, he'll convict. When you need to be corrected, rebuked, he's there to rebuke you. So all these different aspects of the Lord is there toward us today. It's not just one way. It's not just one way. It's a multitude of ways he treats us. And so, uh, fear not, I am the first and the last. Verse 18, I'm he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and death. Now, the keys of hell and death. He's the only one. God, Jesus is the only one that can grant eternal life. Give heaven or deny you heaven. Do you realize that that statement is so important? Have I am he that liveth and was dead and built. I am alive evermore. And I have the keys of hell and death. No church has the keys to death and hell. No church can condemn your soul to hell. No church can say, you are absolved from your sins, you can go to heaven. No church can say that. No pope, no priest, no bishop, no anybody with a religious heart can say to anybody, without me, you don't go to heaven. If you don't give to me, you're condemned to purgatory. Nobody can say that with a straight face. Only the Lord has the keys of hell and death. Verse 19, this is a summary of Revelation. There's three parts of Revelation, verse 19. Write, John, write the things which thou hast seen. He's already showed you some things he has seen. The things that you're reading here, those are some of the things he has seen. And the things which are, he's about to write you and let you read about the seven churches, the things that are, and the things which shall be hereafter, the tribulation itself, the end of the tribulation, eternity the things that shall be hereafter and so this is what revelation is about and i managed to get to chapter two because chapter two is extremely practical it's about the church and the praise of the church and the scolding of the church and things like that okay all right okay let's pray but this is for tonight thank you lord for the word of god we pray that you help us to digest some of the truth in this book it can be very, very deep, and yet it's not supposed to be so mysterious that we can't comprehend truth and things that we can learn for our lives as Christians. Continue to be with us. Help us as we go through this uh, Bible, this last book of the Bible, um, slowly, deliberately, and help us to uh, get blessings and admonitions from it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.